0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Breaking a Baseball News Podcast here on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. I'm Tim Jackson here with TC Zenka. As we sit, the day after Wander Franco's much-anticipated debut, how did you take all that in? TC, did you get to watch it live? Did you catch highlights? How did you uh, How did you enjoy it?
1: You know, I I had to watch the highlights. I did really want to see it live, but I had I had to check in after the fact. But he looked good. He looked ready. Two for four, home run. I don't know that we have a guy quite like him in the game right now, which is very exciting to think about, you know, where he's going to land in this, uh, you know, upper echelon of these super young stars we have in the game right now. But, uh, yeah, so I'm sad that I missed it. But at the same time, you know, that's one day. We got a long, long, (laughs) wonderful time ahead of us, right?
0: Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully a sign of things to come with his career, because like you said, he did go two for four. Uh, He did have a double and a homer. He did score twice. He did have three RBI. He had a walk. Did not strike out. Uh, The thing that really announced itself to me was his plate discipline right off the bat. Like, you can read the reports, you can catch the highlights, uh, maybe catch a game or two if you're regional or if you have uh, MILB TV. But until you see it firsthand, I don't know that it really sinks in for a player like Franco, and that's what stood out to me. I, you know, he working a count from O2 after swinging at two pitches in the zone, and then not even bothering to to like even think about swinging at the next three. in that first that bat was just that was tremendous. And then I think he what well, that was the one he fly out to center. Um, yeah, that was one of his bad
1: at bats. Yeah,
0: yeah, the bad one. He he worked I think six pitches and. Uh, ultimately still still just like again announced himself in that sense that like the third ball was extremely close to the plate and he just he didn't even think about it he he didn't even bite at all didn't didn't do like the patented ryan howard uh like you know the the, (laughs) the almost like hitch at the ball nothing no not even yeah anything at all and you know there's a lot to process when any any time a player like this comes up we've already done it a little bit with logan gilbert uh with jared kelnick and and their struggles but franco is very clearly a class above and pretty much has been forever uh, baseball america ha- had him ranked as the top prospect for the last two seasons eric longenhagen of fangraphs put an 80 grade on him on the 20 to 80 scale so basically like the best prospect you could possibly imagine uh and then you know th- over at MLBTR, they, they were writing about Franco's debut and saying that, as one might expect for someone who draws such praise for his hit tool, Franco has very rarely gone down on strikes in the minors. His 11.6% strikeout rate in AAA this season is the highest of his career, and that's still less than half the MLB average mark of 23.4% over the course of his minor league career. Franco has punched out in just 7.9% of his plate appearances while walking a strong 10% of the time if you hear of a player like that on any given night day article whatever tc does any particular type of player or particular career come to mind in terms of plate discipline
1: i think of a couple different things you know this guy didn't have the 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 walk the walking ability like didn't have the real plate coverage but i think of a guy with like a low strikeout rate like you see a strikeout rate that low and i think of somebody like Juan Pierre like this is the type of player we expect right this is this is a dude who he can stick his bat out. he will hit the ball but the quality of contact is maybe not going to be not going to be exactly what we want right but this is not the case with Wander Franco like he he is by all accounts like his ability to make solid contact is his best skill and yet he's still just you can't strike him out so he's not just like hitting dribblers to make contact he's not a guy who's uh speed first like a fleet-footed dude who's gonna get to who's gonna like his how whose like career is gonna go as his babbitt goes right like you see some of these guys this is not what Juan who Andre franco is expected to be whit merrifield is somebody that i think about as being kind of a similar profile maybe i mean merrifield has a 12.8 percent strikeout percentage of the season he also doesn't walk as much 6.7 percent. he's like kind of the the low contact or low strikeout rate um but not speedster category right like he's I mean what we're looking at like a it's maybe like a supercharged Whit Merrifield like this is like you know if Whit Merrifield is you know just the regular you know he's Clark Kent like Wonder Franco is Superman right like that's the Oh, that's kind of interesting. potential expectation, game, very
0: capable reporter right? like in, in Whitmer Merrifield and then a superhero. in Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You love
1: to have you love to have Merrifield around. He's, you know, puts the ball in play. He'll take a walk every now and again. He has the smallest bit of pop. Not very much, but, you know, he's fine. He can move around the field defensively sure handed that's not who Wander Franco is going to be. That's not the expectation with him. The expectation is Wander Franco is that kind of guy in terms of he puts the ball in play. He'll take his walks, but also, I mean, it's hard. I just can't even think of like a guy whose hit tool has been this highly touted before. Cause it's not the power, right? No, Tatis, it's not the role, Acuna, yeah. Soto, Like Vlad Guerrero. These guys like our young stars right now is are our, Power bats. That's that's the big thing. It's the power with the speed together that makes them so flashy. The defense and the just like the electric, the electric like athleticism that, that makes them magnetic personalities. Juan Soto is maybe the closest comparison of that bunch because his his um his approach is maybe something similar to to Franco's theoretical contact ability. Like Soto has an amazing control of the strike zone and and an amazing ability to get on base. But um, Franco is a different thing altogether. And I'm I'm super excited to see what kind of, not even what kind of career, like the career, of course. But, you know, it's just like the season. How quickly is he going to hit the ground running? And by all accounts, people are expecting him to hit the ground running fast, right? Like he's he's supposed to be ready to go. You know, you mentioned a
0: lot of different types of players right there and really guys who run the whole gamut between Soto and Juan Pierre and and a few guys in between. The funny thing about a guy like Juan Pierre is that he never struck out more than 8.2% of the time, and for his career, he was under 6%. Uh, But, like you're saying, not really the type to barrel the ball up, not really a guy to hit the sweet spot on the ball. His career ISO was point oh six
1: six. (laughs) <laughs> I mean that's insane like the one Juan- Juan Pierre as a concept in today's <laughs> game it's just like what like yeah. tell me, a guy has an under 6% strikeout rate and under 6% walk rate I mean he's kind of like Williams Astudillo, right he's like kind of the closest thing to that except he was you know a verifiable leadoff hitter for 10 years yeah. in the league like he, he almost... while walking less than 6% of the time like and on teams that did well and won a World Series and like yeah by all accounts, like it worked back to right? back
0: four win seasons in 0304 with the Marlins. And like, yeah, that, that player had a place in time, but like you're saying, not around in today's game. Uh, even you mentioned Merrifield. I think what's interesting is that we're talking about Franco in the, in the context of not necessarily being an 80 grade prospect because he has 80 grade raw power that he can get to in games, say on a 70 on the scale. Um, but Merrifield, not necessarily the absolutely quickest guy uh, on the field, but he's leading the league in steals and leveraging his skill set. And that's really what Franco seems to be able to do. And when we come to hit tool as an evaluation method or, or as a note, it's really about barrel control, being able to uh, kind of shift your, your hands and wrists through the zone and keep the barrel there as long as possible to make the best quality contact. And that's what Franco seemed to do so fast last night. That's what really jumped out. Beyond working the counts when he did swing, he was so lightning fast through the zone. Like I don't remember a player coming up and having hands that quick. Like just just ripping through the zone just like the Flash as if they could be wrapped up into one person's hands as a superhero. Like that's where they would reside with Franco. And we talked about Kelnick as he came up. We also mentioned that it seemed to be pitchers were exposing a hole in his swing right away that he was going to have to adapt. Again, one game and Franco will inevitably have to make adjustments. But he looked like the real deal pretty much right away in that, in that game last night. And that, it was like stunning. It, it, was, it was almost startling. How apparent that was, because even talking about this, this strikeout rate, uh Jonathan Judge, who does a lot of the stat work at Baseball Prospectus, was saying on Twitter today that strikeout rate is one of the most translatable things from level to level. And he was saying it in the context of the Brewers calling up Keston Hura, another younger player who's really struggled, who's really been exposed yeah. to some extent, right? But to see how that doesn't translate, too, to Wander would seem to be short-sighted, right? Like, if he's if he's historically avoided whiffing, avoided strikeouts to the minor leagues, and we see that right off the bat in his very first opportunity in the majors, seems reasonable to be able to expect some sort of, of rhythm uh, or some sort of movement along that path, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. I don't see any, any reason why we should expect anything less. I mean, his hands are just incredible. Like you said, it's I mean it reminds me of, of Javi Baez, but it's like, you know, Wander Franco is like on a track and Javi Baez is like, you know, driving a car <laughs> down the through the desert or something like that. It's like when you when you, you turn off in a movie into the cornfields. So that's what that's Javi Baez's hands. Right? He's so untethered. And Franco Franco is so in control. And I mean it's funny they talk about his short arms as being a real yeah. value, which is something that that Rays like out of their infielders. Right, this is kind of a classic Rays trait is that have short-armed infielders, and he's the best of the bunch, and he's just able to rip those hands through the zone so fast. I mean, yeah, I mean this guy's this guy's the limit for him. One game, he's already been worth .2f WAR. He's on pace for over 32 f <laughs> 4 in a full season.
0: A natural thing to look at and expect.
1: <laughs> yeah, of course, i I expect he'll be this. All season, zero percent strikeout rate, twenty percent walk rate. Yeah, we're at we're on the way. Well, that's again so striking. Like
0: even the leaderboards among guys right this season who have a lower K percentage. The lowest in the league is Kevin Newman at six point three percent, then it's Yuli Gurriel, Michael Brantley, and they're up at nine point five and eleven percent. David Fletcher, Adam Frazier, Tommy Edmond, Alex Verdugo. Jose Ramirez, Merrifield, and Charlie Blackman round out the top ten. They're all under 13%. But only a couple of those guys really stand out as not necessarily comps for Franco, but maybe like uh overall ability or like where's the power there? Where's right. the power in that group? Right. Because it's not in Newman, it's not in Fletcher or Fraser or Edmund. Maybe a little bit in Verdugo. Uh, Jose Ramirez is playing really well so far this season. Blackman seems to be bouncing back to a certain extent. Michael Brantley's been on fire lately, but like you're saying, these are not guys who jack 30 homers in a year, who even hit 25 homers in a year typically, right?
1: No, not at all. It's not at all an expectation from that group. Even like... The expectation is like, you know, solid at bats, right? right. Put together good at bats, You have that's a, a group of relatively decent defenders there's guys who who run okay and like you know have generally well-rounded games and they're gonna you know keep putting the other solid bats for you right that's that's what that group is
0: yeah and and really the best ones there or maybe the the most reasonable ones to again kind of align Franco with here I think are Brantley in terms of pure hit tool because Brantley's another guy who just does not strike out and can really control the zone and then maybe Jose Ramirez who is pretty much on pace again to Cracked 30 homers for the second time in his career. He got 29 in 2017 and then 39 in 2018. Uh, Coincidentally, his best seasons to date, 6.5 and 8.1 wins by Fangraph's war. And I'm almost curious, like after one game, of course, we're going to be doing some dreaming on Franco. But do you see him being able to tally that kind of overall production while being able to play? Probably around the infield?
1: I mean, yeah, especially if he stays it short. I mean, Jose Ramirez is the comp that I've heard. And that makes a lot of sense in terms of body type. In terms of, you know, they're both switch hitters. They're both smaller guys in terms of like the, the superstar scale. So if you get Jose Ramirez playing shortstop, like, holy moly, like, that's an incredible player. So Jose Ramirez has been undervalued for a very long time. And he remains one of the, one of the, better players in baseball so i mean if that's at all the the category of where franco ends up that is one heck of
0: a player well so let me ask you this then how often do you think he could do that do you think that's a year in year out thing do you think that's a two or three year peak thing do you see the ability to maybe have a a sporadic season like that where you know some players do that where they are great and then a couple years they're okay or really
1: solid and then they're great again all accounts are that Franco is the real deal. That he's a generational talent. He's gotten better and better every season since when he was first being scouted when he was 14 years old. He's 20 now. He's still just barely 20, yeah. and the fact that he keeps getting better is is a great sign. The only thing I've heard the uh, the flaw I heard in his game was that he hasn't failed yet. Like that was that was that was like the one like scouting report flaw of like this is the one thing we can say we can't say that he can do yet which is that he hasn't failed yet anywhere and that does sometimes hit guys at the major league level you fail for the first time like Like Kellinick I don't know that that's Franco's future the thing that makes me believe in him is that he doesn't have like outside of the hit tool it's not those super loud tools right it's not the Jason Dominguez power it's not yeah like the blazing speed and, and the fact that this guy, it's not even like, you know, a super slick shortstop, by all accounts, he looks relatively average and yet there's so much belief in his bat that I just, I just feel like it must be as good as they say. And yeah, it's, I don't see why he can't be, if the question is, can he stick at short, if he sticks at shortstop? Yeah. That's, that's like a perennial MVP candidate. Who knows? Like if he moves to third, we're looking at, yeah, if he gets anywhere close to Jose, Jose Ramirez, that's great. What about Anthony Rendon? That's another guy, doesn't strike out, and he takes his walks, right? Anthony Rendon, fifteen percent strikeout rate for his career, ten percent walk rate. Anthony Rendon, another guy who's been long been undervalued. He's having a rough go over this season because he's been hurt. But that's a guy I think of too. He's a right-handed guy, but so in control at the plate, so in control. Now he he has, he's been a guy who's hit three hundred. You know, three years in a row from 2017 to 2019, and very still in the box, ice cold, very cool, like doesn't get overwhelmed with the moment. Was like low key the best player on the 2019 Nats, you know, world champions. And if that's the guy the Rays are looking at, the question is like, how quickly can he become that guy? Yeah, well, that's I think he, you know, injuries aside, who knows, but like, it looks like he's he can it looks like he'll have. I mean, you can't say about longevity, but it looks like he's going to be that kind of consistent superstar. It seems like he has that kind of consistent game,
0: right? Yeah, and even dating back to any report, really, it's that he's just always been this player. So while it could be a knock against him, I guess, in some way, shape, or form, that he has not failed yet, this also reminds me of the phrase that elite players are always elite, and he's been that like he's been that, like you're saying, since he was barely a teenager and pretty much through every level of the minors. Um, you know, th- there are things that stick out in a scouting report. Like you're saying, the tools aren't necessarily loud. They're not the ones that, they're. you know, they're not 80 grade speed. It's it's not, again, 80 grade raw power. But even from, and we'll, we'll take this from the Fangraph scouting report from Eric Longenhagen because it is public. Anybody can go and check it out. But in the middle of his report, in the blurb on the Rays list, which is always incredibly incredibly long, right, because that's how the Rays operate, uh, he, Eric says that Franco is especially adept at spoiling well-located back foot breaking balls, and if you miss with one and catch even part of the zone, he can drop the bat head and yank it out to his pull side. Work away from him, and he'll extend his arms and pepper the opposite field gap with line drives, then uses speed to turn lots of those into doubles. That is pretty much exactly what we saw last night, right? The double was pull side, but he turned that into a double with with the way he ran. And he the homer, same thing. They left it over the plate and he crushed it. It, it came, I think it was like a 105 exit below. Uh, and, and again, just so quick to the ball that it's almost like it's undeniable, right? He, he, he How do you deny what Wander Franco is? Arguably was ready maybe even last year as a 19-year-old. And we can get into that momentarily because that's kind of what the Rays do too, right? Not bringing these guys up just because they look ready. That's typical of them. But it's so it's so apparent that he is what he is, right? That he is such a quality, not even quality, really, truly, seemingly incredible player. I don't remember a player's debut where there was one, that much fanfare, and two, that much demonstrated over the course of a handful of at-bats that said, oh, this is why everybody is excited.
1: I mean, it was Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper and Mike Trout. Those are the last guys that were this far along and this kind of established. And they were different kind of players. And, you know, for whatever we think of Bryce Harper, Wander Franco has a long way to go before he gets to Bryce Harper right? But that's the last guy. I think that's the last guy where there was really this much fanfare, where there was this much excitement about his
0: debut. And what's crazy about that is you mentioned those two names, Trout and Harper, both great players in their own right. Trout, obviously, a cut above pretty much everybody. But that really hits on something that came up in a Nino Saras article recently about Franco's projections, about how, uh, you know, he referenced the tweet from Derek Cardi in regard to Tatis and how Tatis debuted and came out pretty much lit the world on fire. But Derek Cardi highlighted how many players of this caliber, despite really, really good projections right off the bat, pretty much before they took a major league at bat, how many of them struggled versus how many of them did pretty well and how many of them crushed it? So all the ones we've mentioned so far are on that crushed it list. Acuna Tatis. Um, Harper is on that list. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., we know he struggled. The list of guys who have struggled is, is incredible. It's, it's Eloy Jimenez, Victor Robles, Nick Senzel, Francisco Mejia, also a Ray now. Dansby Swanson, J.P. Crawford, Johan Mancata, Ahmed Rosario, Byron Buxton, Omar Mazzara, that's just the top half. Mike Trout is on that list too. Uh, Manny Machado is on that list. You have guys like Joey Gallo and Xander Bogart. like Javi Baez. Remarkable list of players who you would take on your team in just about any context, almost any of them. And yet so many of them came up and struggled. So to cite the excitement, the fervor, building up around Franco in that debut last night and connecting it to Harper and Trout is really interesting because Harper came up and crushed... And Trout came up and struggled. If you had to go with your gut reaction right now, do you feel like Franco sits in one of those camps, or do you think he's somewhere in the middle?
1: Well, oh, that's tough. I mean, I think he'll—I don't know how much he's going to crush in the traditional sense. Like, I don't know that he's going to be an all-star right away. I think he's going to be, you know, better than Willie Adams right away and i think he'll be better than uh you know a lot of guys could potentially be like i don't know that he'll even like put up is he gonna put up more bat than joey wendell like he'll put up more pop sure uh you know i'm not sure that the downgrade is too far from joey joey wendell i mean joey wendell's a fine fine player and in this first season i don't know but i also think that the rays They do keep guys down longer. And I think Franco, especially, I have to think that this is part of it, that like they know the expectations around him and they know that if they bring him up just a moment, I have to imagine they were working their best. The race were so good at protecting their players and putting them in successful situations or situations where they can succeed that I I have to think that they're working Franco in such a way that he's coming up ready to crush because they know the expectations are there for it. And they know that they, the thing is that the expectations could not be higher. The expectations are that he's going to carry this offense, right? This offense has not been great. There is not a star player in this offense that Brandon Lau has been the centerpiece of this team for the last couple of seasons. And Brandon Lau is not that guy. He's, he's a, he's an efficient player at at his best who has struggled recently. He's a guy with pop some versatility you can move him around and they've got him on a really great contract and so they were able to make him that kind of centerpiece because of because he's not an a right. right that's right. why he is in that position as a core piece of that lineup much the same way that kevin kiermeyer has been the centerpiece of this team for a very long time i don't know that that franco is ready to really carry the load in that way but i would not be surprised either yeah, I, I think that's
0: understandable. I mean, they do they have a I think the seventh ranked offense by uh, FanGraphs and how they they tally all of those rates. Uh, so that would be probably by War. Uh, I'm just gonna double check that real quick. I clicked away from the tab.
1: They've had a, a tough couple of weeks.
0: Recently, yeah, they came out on fire and then they finally started losing the last couple of weeks, like you're saying. But yeah, they 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 check in with the seventh best offensive war in the game. And when it comes to them as a lineup, they're doing that well because they do have the likes of Joey Wendell uh, leading the charge so far. And you imagine he'll cool off at some point. They do have Mike Zanino swinging a hot bat with a WRC plus at 116. Rosarina is at 117. Austin Meadows is at 120. And then pretty much every other regular is well below that. So they are kind of top heavy, I guess, in a sense. And they are that team that we have come to know as piecemealing it in a way where it's like you don't know the player, but you know they're productive because they're on the Rays and, and playing regularly. And Franco is projected for a 115 WRC+. plus. It's the second best projection in the last like 10 or 12 years, pretty much only to Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who came up and did struggle. And it's almost like there are so many potential outcomes here that don't necessarily mean failure or lack of success, but that don't necessarily have him carrying the load early on. Do you think any of those guys that we just named in terms of Tampa's roster and Wendell's and uh, Rosa Arena, Meadows, do you think they tail off at any point? Do you think Franco helps steady a ship if any of these guys falter?
1: I think they all falter. That's the, that's the beauty of the Rays system is, and, and, the fact that Wander Franco Franco is coming up on the Rays is to me the most kind of curious and interesting part about his whole debut, about this whole first couple of seasons here because the Rays, part of their whole ethos, part of the thing that's helped them succeed so well is that they don't have anybody that has to stay in the lineup, right? When they're in the playoffs, if you're struggling, you're out. If you don't, like, they platoon everybody. Like, at any given point, Guys can be moved around. Guys can be taken out of the line. It's, it's not shocking to see anybody come out. When the the Cubs do not move Chris Bryant, they do not pinch hit for Chris right. Bryant. That does not happen. The Phillies will not pinch hit for Bryce Harper, right? Like the Yankees aren't doing that for Aaron Judge. The Rays will pinch hit for anybody in the right spot. And so to think of them having a really upper echelon offensive player, and and Rosario has been has given us a little bit of a preview of that, but he's been but he was surprising in his role last year in the playoffs and he's been good this year, but maybe not quite that level yet. I don't know how the Rays are going to handle having a kind of superstar guy like that. Does, you know, does Franco play five, five days out of seven? Is, are they sitting him? Are they moving him around the lineup? Like can move everyone else around the lineup? Are they moving him around the infield? Like they move everyone else around? Like, by all accounts, he's as good from the left side as he is from the right side. Like, can you platoon him? Or are there situations that they are preparing for to kind of lighten the load for him? Like, are there particular kind of lefties or righties that they think he's going to struggle with that they're going to ready to give him those days off? Or are they just going to ride him like any other team, any of the the, the other 29 teams would just ride him and let him go? Will the Rays actually go kind of counter to their usual style and just plug, plug him in and play. Him. I, I think know.
0: that he's likely to sit at some point just because, uh, because he's young, because they do have so many other players uh, because he could be a legitimate weapon coming off the bat, the bench against a given right or left-hander, uh, especially given whatever the arsenal, the starter has for that game. And they think, you know what? He hasn't quite shown it yet, or we don't want him to, we don't want him to falter. We don't want him to fail in that sense. So we're going to shield him here a little bit uh, and then definitely use him later in the game. Like I I can't imagine many scenarios in which Wander Franco does not have some sort of appearance in the game. And like he started last night at third base. We know he can play shortstop. If you needed him at second, I bet he could do it. So he can really play all around the infield. Like you're saying, he can hit from both sides of the plate and not can hit from both sides of the plate like Ozzie Albies to the point where it's like, maybe you question if he should keep doing it. It's like, no, he can do it. So it's almost like they have to close their eyes and say, no, 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 we can't see that he can do that to make him sit for a full game or, or for any given matchup outside of just like, ah, oh, we just don't want him to yet, which kind of does fit their narrative as, as an organization for the Rays. They do play those games and some of it, could reflect the way that he might earn money right like maybe he doesn't hit a certain milestone or two over the course of his first couple of years of of playing that really maybe impacts him in year 1 or 2
1: of arb in a couple of seasons right i mean it's possible i don't think that the i don't think they they're, they're going to sit him that much but i do think that his financial situation is one is going to be one of the more fascinating to watch cuz again the the rays don't sign guys long-term, the guys, the Rays, and not only that, the Rays typically trade guys a year or two before they have to, because they want to maximize that value. I mean, Willie Adames obviously was in a position to move because of Franco, but even if Franco wasn't coming up, it was a classic Rays move to move him just when he was becoming arbitration eligible because they want to trade these guys with years of control left. And that's not, that's very much within their style. So the thing about Franco being on this team, he's going to be, to assume that he's going to be as good as he's going to be, he's going to be making top dollar through arbitration, even if he's only playing 145 games a season or something like that. Like he'll still be fine. How many years do the Rays have with him? And that's why, I guess the more I think about it, to go back to your question, you know, do I see Wander Franco in the, the Bryce Harper going to crush it now camp or the Mike Trout, you know, might struggle a little bit. I see him in the, in the Harper camp for sure. Like he's going to, I have to assume he's going to crush because the Rays need him to crush, and the Rays typically, like recently at least, have gotten what they have wanted out of their players. Like injuries aside, I mean, they were able to trade guys like Blake Snell because they knew they had Glasnow who was ready to step up, and they knew expected him to take on that ace role, and he did. Like they've been able to piece everything together. There, I trust them as an organization more than probably any other organization in the game right now, and I just have to assume that. They know now that their window with Franco is as short as four seasons, probably longer, probably longer, of course, because he's he's an exceptional talent. But they're not going to get away with the Evan Longoria contract. So that's to keep that's, him longer. They're not going to get to sign him early.
0: That's immediately what I wanted to ask you about because the last time the Rays really had a player of this caliber on a regular basis were the first four years of Longoria's career, where he put up five and a half wins, seven, seven and a half, and then six and, and change. Struck out under 20% in two of those years. Actually, he got better each year. Uh, and then he walked more each year. And so there are a couple of things going on. The Rays do have some experience with this. They did sign Longoria to the extension pretty much immediately. That allowed them to get him up and playing at 22. Because otherwise, he probably wouldn't have seen the field then. But right now, Franco's up. He does not have that extension. I can't really see him signing it. Because who does it help? And he's already made it this far. And then the, the other thing is that what, like, what, what do you really kind of expect him to do when it comes to the plate discipline and how far does it go? Because strikeout rate, walk rate, as mentioned in that you know, Saris article where he talks to Derek Cardi, where he talks to Adam Gutridge who is now uh, an AGM with the Mets, about projection systems. Walk rate, strikeout rate go a long way toward helping project a player power is really, really difficult to to really peg for a hitter, especially that young, especially given how the minors function. And, you know, guys might be there to work on a certain skill, not necessarily to make the most of every skill. And if the ceiling or, you know, the sky is really the limit for Franco, and we're talking about a potential MVP candidate at peak, like, uh, like Keith Law has said, Yeah, how quickly does he get there? Do you see him being a Longoria type player where he puts up 25, 26 wins in his first few years?
1: I wouldn't be surprised. Again, I mean, it's hard to say I expect that out of anybody, but I would not be surprised. I would not be surprised if Franco is immediately one of the better hitters in the game. It would not be surprising me in the least because. He's not gonna sign the Longoria deal. He's not gonna sign one of these pre-arbitration. Like Longoria signed initially before he was up, and then he signed a hundred million dollar extension to extend that term. But he was already kind of locked into those below market rates. And this was before there was much understanding, even it was it was one of those earliest, earliest right. uh pre-arb deals. So, like, you know, the jig is up. Guys are not signing these kinds of deals anymore, especially a guy like Franco. Franco could get hurt for the next two seasons and released and still probably signed for millions of dollars oh, yeah. like, dude has such a ceiling like he's gonna get paid and there's no reason for him to sign early he had, he had a multiple million dollar signing bonus he has made millions of dollars already there was zero incentive for him to sign early and i don't know who his agent is but it doesn't matter there is not a chance that he signs an extension an early extension i, I don't i see zero percent chance of that happening of him signing an, an, an a below market extension before he reaches free agency, which means like I can't stay, see him staying with the Rays for longer than six years. Cause what world is there in which the Rays, the Tampa Bay Rays sign a player for $400 million. They've never spent more than a hundred million dollars in a single contract. The hundred million dollar extension that they gave to Evan Longoria in 2012. That's the, that's the most money they've ever given up in a single deal. $100 million. That's not gonna happen. That's not gonna cut it for Franco. And I just, I can't imagine. You know, lots of things can happen in six years. Of course, you know, lots of things can happen. The Padres, for goodness (laughs) sakes, we never would have seen spending the money that they've been spending. So, yeah, maybe it happens. But what we know right now about the Rays, about their, about their history, it would seem at this point to be very unlikely that Franco would have more than seven seasons with the Rays, right? So, there it is, Tampa. There, there, you're ready to go. You got seven years. So yeah, I do expect him to to be there and to start raking from the jump.
0: It's really interesting to think of it from just the pure financial perspective of the Rays, saying that they have never given out more than that Longoria contract, which pretty much paid dividends for them right away. And even in the, the you know his fifth season, he got hurt, but was on pace for another five wins uh his 60s and he put up another five and a half i i don't know that you could have asked for more ultimately out of that deal but like you're saying you know kind of difficult to figure franco to sign one of those deals because while players from the dominican and, and similar backgrounds have been the ones to sign those deals he really does seem to be a cut above already in so many different ways And if I said the the cap for the Tampa Bay Rays signing Wander Franco was $250 million, T.C., do you think they go that high?
1: No, I don't. Not even even that high. I mean, gosh, they'd be stupid not to. But I think the Rays, I don't think they even necessarily want to sign him to a long-term deal. That's not Mm -hmm. how they function, right? If he's as good as we think he's going to be, then in six years, they will have... Mookie Betts on their hands with, you know, with one more year before free agency and they'll be able to deal them for a haul, which is what the Rays do. Like for the Rays to have a top trade asset on their hands like that, like that's great for them. They like, that's money in the bank, right? They're going to make that trade work in their favor. And I think that that's at least the way that we've seen them function up till now I think that is far, far more likely that they wait and they won't have to trade him early the way they have with other players to maximize his value. No. Mookie Betts has plenty, especially Mookie Betts was traded at like the worst time financially for a guy in his last year. Like that was insane. That was a ridiculous thing. Theoretically, if Franco was traded with one season left, they should be able to get plenty for him. I don't see, I think that's far more likely than them signing him to any kind of extension. I mean, right now the Rays have two players who were signed to a multi-year deal, who were signed like two players. They have two players, The two guys we've mentioned, Kevin Kiermaier and Brandon Lau. Those guys have been the centerpiece of their team because they have skill sets that the club very, very highly values, more so than other, other clubs, which is center field defense in the case of Kiermaier and like pop and versatility from the infield in the case of Lau. And they're like B to B plus players, and that's why they're that's why they're centerpieces of this team. And the Rays have made it work, have made it work that way. Like those two guys have been signed long term. and They're signed for very cheap. Kevin Kiermeyer, six years, fifty three million. Brandon Lowe six years, twenty four million. Like nobody on their team makes more than ten million dollars. Kevin Kiermeyer has the highest salary right now at eight million or eight almost nine million, pretty much nine million, right? Like if they can be this good. With this financial structure, and this is what's this is what's struggling, what's tough for the league right now. If they can be this good with this financial structure. Why do it a different way? Right, yeah. and that's what we're all struggling with. Like the the Dodgers have looked at the same. That's what the Dodgers said. That's why they hired uh, Andrew Friedman because they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. If they can do that,
0: why can't we? We do can that? do that,
1: but we can spend just like a little bit more. You know, yeah. a lot more, but still, like. And I think you know, teams have shown that you can do it this way so why would the Rays do it differently why would they pay Wander Franco 250 million five years from now even if he's as good as we think even if he's just entering his prime then because it still locks them into long-term money which is which does hamstring your roster building uh you know abilities it does make it difficult for you to be malleable and move around year to year. And like when teams bottom out, they bottom out because they have long-term money that they can't move. And that isn't adding value to their team. That's why teams right. and, and and the Rays are, are against They them. are.
0: And when it comes down to it, they already have demonstrated not even just the willingness of an execution in kind of suppressing his wages, right? Like you could have made an argument for 29 other teams that he could have come up in 2020 uh, you, you go back to when he signed as an international free agent and there's some hinky stuff there, just like most international free agent signings. But he apparently had a deal pretty much, you know, as, as an early, early teenager with another club. that yep. got blown up with MLB's new international rules for signings. Uh, they told teams that when they had signed him or when they were about to sign him, that he was already signed, even though he was not official yet. So they kind of hit him and, and teams couldn't offer him more. Uh, so th- they've probably pushed his his career earnings down millions of dollars already, and I think their track record to do that with pretty much anybody, and with this player in particular, in this explicit context, shows that they'll be willing to do it again, or at least shuffle off when that when they feel that the cost is out of their control. In the sense that to sure. keep him, they would have to pay him, and I think that's very interesting sure. because then now we're we're kind of facing a hypothetical of. It seems much more practical that we'll get that that conversation of what would a trade for Mike Trout look like. Because if Franco hits that level, he hits that ceiling, or breaks through it, that's kind of where we are. And the Rays might view that as extremely exciting, even if the bust potential on the guys to
1: get back is way higher than what they have with Franco Exactly. Exactly. And I get it. I get it. It's, it goes back to the, the same thing that we've talked about before. We are afraid of change. We are all of us afraid of change. <laughs> so we want a star player who comes to our team and gets locked in forever. We want Mike Trout. We want Bryce Harper. We want these guys to come in and to stay forever and to know that like, okay, we've got a superstar here for forever, but the Rays don't see it that way. The Rays see a guy like they don't see like you know, everything around Chris Bryant the last year has been horrible. Like, he's still on the Cubs, and it's been a horrible experience because all they're talking about is, oh, they're going to deal him. They're not signing him long-term, blah, blah, blah. Like, the Rays see this situation. Like, we may see it as like, oh, great, they got this guy, but they are only going to have him for so long because they're never going to sign him long-term. That's what we're going to see and, ke- and keep saying over and over again. The Rays are looking at it and saying, we have going to have seven years. We're going to have six years of one of the best players in baseball. We're going to have him for three years at – league minimum and we're going to have him for below market values for three years after that and then we're going to have one of the best players in in baseball available as a trade asset like that is a hugely hugely positive thing for our organization so why sell it with some other construct because because we want to feel the security of having a guy forever we might not have him forever we're going to have six years of this awesome player and then we're going to flip him into like essentially 24 years or more of control of some other awesome players like and maybe they don't all pan out whatever whatever but like we're gonna pay it forward and the fact that we get six years of watching this guy is a positive thing that's a great thing so are you saying and it doesn't have to
0: be anything but are you that. saying in effect this is what cleveland has with jose ramirez where they get asked about his long-term prospects for sticking around the team in the org and the response from management is enjoy him while he's here
1: yeah, it is. I mean, they can't. I think it's difficult when you start talking about like, I mean, the whole conversation is difficult because it's like, can we keep them forever? Is that the point or is the point that it's actually better to, to churn, right. right? It's actually easier to churn. It's really hard to keep the same team and rebuild on the fly. And even when you have stars, even when you've won the World Series, it's hard to get back, right? Like that's where teams get really stuck. It's best to be free flowing and flexible where anybody is an asset, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. It's not a fun way to think about people and it's not a fun way to think about ballplayers that we like, but it is the best way to build an organization. It is the best way to like, to keep your, to maximize your your financial records and your your playing field right. records. Playing
0: business aspects of it. Yeah, absolutely. Cause you, you remove anything personal that says, no, we need to keep Wander Franco because he's Wander Franco. And the Rays again have demonstrated time and time again, like a lot of teams probably better than any team. We don't value we don't value that name on the back. We, we just value how their production lines up with what we're willing to pay and when they're not lined up,
1: we'll ship them out. So are you But I think you can do both. But I think you can value the name on the back while still having that philosophy. Like I think you can be like internally, you can still treat a person well. You don't have to be like you know, we're not going to get to know this 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 asset because we may eventually need to trade him. Like certainly that's why there are different people in different roles. And that's why you have a manager who's there and not who that's why it's terrible, a terrible idea to have, you know, Tom Thibodeau, be your coach and your GM and you know, but that never works. Like it's not a good idea usually because those separation is helpful. And I, I just think that you can actually do, you can't, it's very, very difficult. Of course, this is what's very, very difficult, but I do think that you can run like a humanist pro human organization while still, you know, working to maximize your value. And, uh, you know, a team like the Dodgers can do it in a fun way where they can pay up for someone like Betts when Betts comes along. The Rays don't have that kind of luxury. It doesn't seem... Uh,
0: Or willingness, I guess, from ownership. I mean, I I, which is maybe a me thing. I've made that comment. All the owners are billionaires. I I have a hard time believing they can't afford somebody. True. But ultimately what you're saying that... It's interesting what you're saying because it really outlines two things. You're saying the best way to run the business is... The way the Rays have done it, and yet you're also saying that it's possible that they can be humanist about it—that they they can value that name on the back and what they've done as people, in terms of contributing to the the organization, in terms of contributing to that faceless business. What I think is really interesting is that the gap between the two isn't that big, right? Like, it's really not that hard. The rates have figured it out enough from a financial aspect when it comes to their scouts. They figured out if we pay them a little more, we'll be able to get better talent. And it'll pay off way, way bigger for us. I'm waiting for a team. I guess I'll be waiting forever because it'll require an owner being benevolent to the lengths, we've, the lengths of which we've never seen. Where they are willing to say, no, he's Wando Franco. Of course he's sticking around. And not play any games, and not be like, "Well, we really wanted him, but he just priced himself out." Like, or we really wanted him, but we just couldn't turn that down this deal with the uh, the the twenty twenty seven equivalent of Alex Verdugo, and
1: you know, taking yeah. him in that way. Well, it's hard to it's hard to go the other way when you if you don't want to keep a guy long term, if you don't feel that that's what's best for your organization, yeah. then it's hard to find the right language for it. I think because. Again, you look at the Cubs and Chris Bryant, and it's been this like horrible situation. Even though, like, I don't think the Cubs, I don't think it's wise for them to sign Chris Bryant long term, as great of a player as he is, and he is still a great player. I don't know that he's the guy that you want to give eight years, 10 years to at, you know, $30 million or whatever the number is going to be. Like, I think it's probably wiser to do exactly what they're doing and wait, but that does create this difficult conversation. Publicly, and you have to do your best to insulate the players from that. That's why the Cubs hired David Ross as their manager, so that they could try to figure out: Can we keep this family together as long as it's going to stay together? Keep the family vibes within the building, even though we know that the bloodsuckers are coming and it's going to be this like horrible narrative for two years and maybe more. Can we still preserve this sense of like we want you here now, and we we hope something works out, and we're going to keep thinking about trying to find the right value? And it's and it's not BS. Like I don't think it is. It's like it is about. We don't know what the proper market value is for you. If we could find it and pay you it, we would right. do that. But market value is not an easy it's thing a moving to, target. To, to, to diagnose. It is a totally moving target, especially with guys who are getting hurt and who's like coming off COVID seasons. And when, like you know, values of players are changing and their abilities are changing and they're aging, like it's a very, very complicated, as you said, moving target. So I, I don't know. I, I think the conversation generally, I think, you know, there's a lot of like negativity towards owners, and I get it. And it's fair because they are, you know, they have too much money. And it's it's never really, I think, about what they can't afford, even if that does become like the language that's used publicly. I I think in regards to Brian
0: specifically, there are very unique details about that situation. One is that the Ricketts as owners don't have the best reputation for being willing to spend, right? And two, Chris Bryan is really... He's been in the middle of this service time manipulation stuff from the time he came up. So, you know, to, to bring him yeah. up as, as the guy in this context, it does set us on a certain path that really does force us to reflect on maybe how things are are constructed through the game because, yeah, I don't know that it's a great idea to pay him for 8 or 10 years at top dollar either because he's 29, but the whole thing with Brian was like if you let me come up when I'm ready and you didn't clearly keep me down in, in only the, the, you know in a way that was veiled in the thinnest way possible for money reasons, you'd be paying me a year sooner, and it would have made sense to pay me then. So like that's how the game works. And We're on the precipice of a new CBA. That's coming. Whether it happens in time for a season to start in 2022 or not, doesn't matter. The new CBA will happen at some point. And that seems to be the center of it, right? Paying players earlier so that you pay them when they're worth it as opposed to saying, well, Chris Bryant's 29. How can we justify paying him for eight to 10 years? It's, well, I don't know. Maybe if you wanted to let him play when
1: he was younger, you wouldn't have to answer that question so thoroughly. Okay. Okay, yes, I hear you. But let me counter with this. like, Chris Bryant is the face of this thing for a reason. He's the face of this thing because he came up and raked right away. Is he the face of this thing because he was held down more so than other guys, or is he the face of this thing? Because he's the best face for the players. Like the players want him to be the face of this thing because he was so clearly ready when he did finally show up. There've been lots of other guys who have come up and not been clearly ready. Jared Kelly, sure. for one, right. He's not going to be the face of this thing because he comes up, even though it's like after the fact, we're like, Oh, he's ready from day one. We expect him opening day. He comes up. He's not ready. He goes over 39, whatever it is, whatever is happening. It's, you know, bad luck, whatever's going on. Like, It's not as clear-cut. Chris Bryant is an easy face for the players to lean on because he was an MVP from day one. He was rookie of the year's first year. He was MVP the second season. So that's why he's the face of this thing for players. And it makes perfect sense. And he was a little older then. So like, yeah, he is harder to pay now. But also, is, is he like the poster child for this because it was so egregious or just because he was so good from the jump and the fact that he was good from the jump isn't proof that he was ready before it might be proof that he came up at exactly the right time. I mean, the Cubs went to the, the NLCS when he was a rookie, they won the world series, his second season. It seems to me like they did it exactly right for the, for the, for the organization. So I, I don't know that that's like as big of a, as big of a win for players as it's always made out to be. Well, and The thing know, with Brian if is you think that the financial system is all messed up, but like, you know with this particular financial system the way it's set up like i think that it makes sense i think it's a bit of a trap to look at chris bryant and to say like you know this is a you know this is an egregious error or whatever or you know the v- thing with misuse of the system. thing with bryant is that he came up and
0: played 151 games in 2015 though right and he did win rookie of the year and he did post six wins and so he played pretty much every game possible right it, the the idea that they manipulated right. his service time centers on the idea that they held him down long enough uh, to gain the extra year of control, which is kind of where we are in this boat,
1: right? Right. They definitely did that. Right. Like 100% they and, did that. But also it's hard to argue that it wasn't the smart thing to well, do, for, right? for like, the business,
0: for the faceless business, sure. But now he is the face right. of that franchise. Like you're saying, he's been such a critical part to it. And I think that's, that. you know, like that year of control is millions of dollars. And when it comes to Franco and the Rays, they've not only done that, but now they've held him down past the Super Two market, right? Past likely past the Super
1: Two date. Well, and that's an even bigger right. deal, right? Because the Cubs—they still end up paying Chris Bryant for four right. seasons. Like they—they paid Chris Bryant a ton of money through those four years of arbitration, and the fact that they kept him for an extra year as the face of the organization is also like, you know, that goes into your point that like they, they, they held him back, yes, so they got control of him longer, but. That's because they wanted him as the face of the organization, the Rays doing this now to hold him past the Super Two date—that is a whole other can of worms that I don't even totally understand. Like, right. T- well, in terms of like their extra the, time, right? Because they get they now get so much more t- control of him, and, and he doesn't get the benefit of the extra right arbitration because season.
0: Super Two is designed to be a benefit to the players where they get the fourth year of arbitration, ultimately giving them a chance to make more money at a higher rate before they hit the market than they would otherwise. Right. And now for Franco to not have that, to not ha- to already be controlled for the extra year, to already have been uh, manipulated financially in-, in the way in which he joined the Rays as an organization, I- it really feels critical that, I- and I guess maybe that does provide some context as to why he hasn't signed a- an extension or why he likely won't before we get a new CBA, but it feels critical for the, the players to kind of emphasize this moving forward. And I'm very curious to see how ownership uh, ultimately pays it out because when it comes down to it, what you are saying, TC, is that Wander Franco is not the guy that the Tampa Bay Rays
1: keep whether this system stays the same or changes, right? I mean, if the CBA changes, who knows Who knows what happens. But if the CBA, I mean, because of so much, all the problems that we're talking about right now all stem from the fact that teams have control over players for six years seasons six to seven seasons which is a huge amount as you said chris bryant is now going to be 30 years old the first time he's a free agent already like well through his prime yeah. like that's crazy that he doesn't have an opportunity to be a free agent when he's in his prime when a star player like him who like you know went to college and came up at a, at a normal development rate like he's not going to get to the benefit from that ever in his career like that's insane Wander frank was 20 years old if he goes to free agency now on this track, he'll be 27. He'll be right at the beginning of his prime. You can't imagine a guy being younger coming up and he's still going to be just like on the cusp of his prime or like, you know, just into his prime when he's a free agent. So like all the problems stem from the fact that like teams have way too much control over the players futures from the minute that they're, they're major leagues. Like that's an insane level of power that the owners have right now and players Everything they do, the CBA is going to be working towards like trying to figure out how to change that balance, because if that balance stays the same, then yes, I think what you said is true. Like, I think Franco's not that guy, I think. But if the system changes in some form or fashion, then, you know, everybody might have to pivot. And I guess we're, we're not going to be able to do anything but wait and see.
0: And uh, I guess in the meantime, enjoy Franco, especially if you're not a Rays fan. You get to enjoy them no matter what. And If you are a Rays fan, uh, hold on
1: tightly, let go lightly, I guess. Um, you got yeah. time. You got time. You know, enjoy them now. Assume that the CBA is going to change in a big that, way that benefits and you. You'll be able to sure. keep them forever.
0: Sure, and I think a good note there is, is is really just to to see that, like, yeah, maybe things change and maybe we can move forward. And and as far as us moving forward, this moment. We can get into this week in baseball. Some bigger injuries coming through again. Byron Buxton goes down. Aaron Savale seems to be missing time soon. Ketel Marte up in the air, having hurt his other hamstring. Joey Lucchese tears his UCL. Adalberto Mondesi strains his oblique. Austin Gomber has forearm tightness. Um, Any of these stick out as anything in particular
1: or unfortunate? I mean, Buxton and Marte are kind of the same thing for the twins and time backs. It's like, you know, I right, pour one out for those guys. Like they're, they're done. Like there's if they weren't done already and they are, there's just, you you can't come back from that. These are their last place teams to lose their best players for the second time yeah. this season. It just, it is not their season. It is not their year for whatever else, for however skilled they might've been in putting these rosters together. Things did not come together for the dime backs and the twins in 2021.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to point out when it comes to those teams and those injuries. On the other hand, we do have some guys coming back. Luke Voigt came back last night and, and had a huge game, a homer and a triple. Max Muncy has been activated. Max Scherzer has brought, been uh, back off the IL. Chris Owings, who is not as big a name, but had a huge impact early on. George Springer, finally back. And Jeff McNeil. Uh, finally. I, do any of these stick out as like clear difference makers for their teams? I, I have one I'm leaning at
1: right right now, but does any stick out to you? Oh, Scherzer. I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, he's already back. He's already Mad Max. He's already almost fought Joe Girardi. <laughs> I mean, he is he's such a big piece of that Nats. If the Nats are going to make any kind of run, Scherzer very much has to be a part of it. I also think that, you know, Muncy's been one of the best players in the game. That said, he's on the Dodgers and they have like six of those guys. So, you know, they're fine. Who are you looking Short at?
0: George Springer for, for the, the Jays, because the AL East is a dogfight as it typically is. Um, for as much as, as we wanted to give guff to the Red Sox, they're on top. They're 15 games over 500. The Blue Jays are seven games back at a game over 500 at 36 and 35. Uh, You know, George Springer could be a multiple-win player, and multiple wins could be a huge deal in that division. So I feel like he's the biggest deal. And and Scherzer, I could definitely see being huge, but I could also see him being traded. And so in that sense, he might not be the biggest deal for the Nats in particular, whereas
1: he might be big for the blue Jays. <laughs> yeah if there's a team that needs him I mean the blue Jays are totally one of those clubs that I could see making a run at Scherzer and he is very much what they need at the top of the rep, that rotation so you know Scherzer hopefully the Nats are either fall away such that they can move them or they or they you know get back in this I guess the Nats are only three and a half back right now so you know they're still very much in it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The The NL East,
0: while it's been less of a dogfight, it's certainly been a slog where everybody's on even footing for the most part.
1: So that's definitely irrelevant. <laughs> the Mar- Marlins still with the best run differential <laughs> in last place. <laughs> Love the Marlins. Love the Marlins.
0: Uh, there are other things going uh, on in the game. You know, Rockies assistant GM Zach Wilson resigned. Just another note of like the Rockies have the weirdest situation in baseball, maybe in terms of their front uh, office, right? Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. I- yeah, I mean, the right. I mean, it's interesting only because the you know the Rockies are such a mess.
0: <laughs> they are, and it's unfortunate. The, the
1: The trade situation is is very confusing though because the 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 couple of teams that we have that are going to be able to sell the Rockies, it's like who's in charge, who's going to be in charge, who's going to be left for that team next year. So that's very much in flux. The Dimebacks are nine and a half games behind the Rockies. Behind the yeah. Rockies, for goodness sakes, and Mike Hazen for for different terrible reasons, his wife is sick. He's away from the team, so. I don't know, even the couple of teams that we have that are gonna be sellers are have very uncertain situations in the front office right now. So it's gonna be, you know, for some reason we're gonna be tracking what's happening in Colorado Rockies front office, and as we have been for the last year, so
0: buckle up, I suppose. Uh Shohei Otani yeah. and Pete Alonso are both going to be in the home run derby
1: TC. Do you care? Um, yeah. I love Otani. I mean, I'm I'm in it because of Otani. Like can he throw batting practice to himself? Is that <laughs> have we figured that out yet? I mean, yeah, that's that's exciting. It's very exciting to see him. I can't help but feel like it will somehow end up in him being injured. But you know, the 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 Vlad and Jock Peterson duel of a couple of was it last year in the home run derby? You no, know, the year before? No it was last year, I think. When Vlad and Jock Peterson in the second to last round just like had this monster duel, it was so Two fun years to watch. Ago, and then Vlad right? lost. Because we all, didn't have one last the, year. Right. And so then Vlad lost ultimately to to Pete Alonso. but that – that showdown between those two kind of got me back on board. So, you know, Otani's super fun. I will, I'll be, I'll watch some of the home run derby to see and see how well he does in it. And Alonzo, I do not care. I do not care. So we, we spent the last two weeks
0: talking about the sticky stuff through baseball and how that's impacting things or how it could, uh, we deliberately did not make this the main topic. If, if I could get one sentence from you on the Max Scherzer, Joe Girardi affair, Last night in Philly at this point, uh, by the time anybody hears it, two nights ago, what would it be?
1: Less than a week, and pitchers are already indignant (laughs) about being checked. Like, it did not take long. It's like one day, and pitchers are already like, oh, again? You're checking me again? Oh, you guys, we're not cheating. And it's like, okay, okay, but you've been cheating for the last number of years, so just— we're just gonna keep checking i mean the scherzer situation was very particular and i get what happened like girardi was seeing him do stuff they hadn't seen him do before and scherzer's like yeah i was touching my hair because i i don't usually do that because i needed sweat because I don't have dry anything. off so yeah. there's right so there's gonna be some of these things and you know it's gonna it's gonna be a pain it's gonna be i'm gonna be annoyed just watching pictures be indignant for the next you know, me four too already, or everybody
0: seems ahead. to think it was bush league by girardi that i've seen i don't know that it really was especially given that context he saw scherzer reacting in a way that he had never seen before um frankly it's frustrating because this is this is what the league wants uh, you know this is pretty unavoidable to say yeah. that they want this because now people are talking about pitchers cheating and managers being uh underhanded and how they check for cheating and and even with scherzer in particular having been named in si less than a week ago as somebody who used substances to help get a a better spin on the ball just very frustrating that capital b baseball very much seems not to like lowercase b baseball baseball um that's about where i land on that 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 brings us to the pl piece of the week by jack stern the rays added another unique reliever to their collection uh, touches on how Rays pitchers tend to have one distinct trait that really sets them apart, and that it shows up in guys like Colin McHugh revamping his cutter or Josh Fleming with his changeup. This time it talks about, or rather Jack talks about, uh, Matt Whistler coming over from the Giants, which is interesting because we've talked about the Giants, uh, who are a team that seems to be able to get players to elevate their game. So one way or another, this, this piece really touches on everything uh, that we've talked about here, there, and everywhere. So go check out. Uh, the, how the Rays added another unique reliever to their collection by Jack Stern. Yeah,
1: yeah I would say that, you know, Jack does a really nice piece in, or a really nice job in this piece of doing what we should be doing every time the Rays make a move, which is not just normally we're like, why would they make this move? Why would why do they like this guy? Like the question is really to dig in to be like, okay, why do they yeah. like this guy? Like, why is, Matt, why is Matt Whistler good? I didn't think he was good. Why is he yeah. good? And the raise probably Yeah, he out. just
0: lost the job, and they want to give him one. So yeah, let's find out why. Uh, that's right. certainly a good observation to make, too. So on that note, TC, where can we find you online and where you're making other good observations?
1: Oh, I'm hanging around Twitter. I'm hanging around the Discord. Uh, I'll probably finally write an article for Pitcher List this week, and uh, I'll be on gonna uh, be Trade Rumors this weekend, uh, Saturday night. And, uh, yeah, always get me a Twitter at TC Zanka.
0: You can find me at Tim Jackson says on Twitter, of course, kicking around Discord uh, where the community is is robust and, and diverse and bringing up every facet of baseball you could imagine or be interested in. Uh, you could uh, you can find me at Baseball Prospectus with the depth charts pieces every week with some fantasy freestyles sprinkled in otherwise. Uh, you can find the pod at BreakingPodPL on Twitter and at BreakingPodPL at gmail.com if you want to email us. Uh, Otherwise, we hope that you subscribe, that you comment uh, and rate us five stars, that you guys have enjoyed your time spent with us because we've certainly enjoyed spending it with you and that you have the best week
1: ever. We'll see you next time, everybody.